In a world. Mate, hold up. We said we're done with the serious intros. Who said? Well, we did. I don't remember that. Well, I said it, and you're me, so, you know. Well, I don't care. In a world. Uh, hey, I told you. We're keeping it light. You do it on your own, then. Well, technically, I already am, so. Anyway, fuck yeah. Pure wild flight. Get it down, ya. How good? Visit nzaerosports.com. I get to do the next one. Well, obviously you moron, we both do. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, Watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe. Anna, this is the easiest podcast I've ever gotten. It was so quick and easy to reach out to you, and it's this is going to be a fun one. So please, tell me, who the fuck are you, and what do you do? Um, I'm Domi Kiger, and I am a skydiver. I guess that's the word that would encompass everything that I do the most. It kind of uh, covers everything, yeah? kind of covers everything, but there's so many little intricacies in there. It's always really hard to explain to people what the fuck I do. Right, right. Well, especially for, for even for jumpers, sometimes it's hard to explain. But for non-jumpers, trying to tell people how you survive by jumping out of airplanes can be really difficult. I mean, I did. I tried to do a TED talk about that. It took me 16 minutes, and I'm not sure I completely succeeded. <laughs> right, right. Actually, I wanted to ask about that, and we'll definitely get into that. But uh, as per usual, I want to jump you back to the beginning of your time. Again, not necessarily in skydiving, but in anything that people would consider extreme. What what got you started? 
Uh, you know, it's, it's always struggled to answer that question because the first time I got my butt on a drop zone, I was 12 years old and I had asked my mom if I could try skydiving and scuba diving. Uh, and I don't even remember so much why those two sports specifically. What I remember is that at the time I'd been horse riding for about 10 years and I felt like, you know, I was 12 years old, obviously massive grown up. And so I had this purse thing dialed in. So I needed to try something in the air and something in the water. And for some reason, skydiving and scuba diving or I don't know, something about diving, maybe. <laughs> I mean, at 12 uh, years old, that's very young to get bit by that bug. Yeah, I guess. And I, I'm not even really sure. Like I, I had no one in my environment who did any of those sports, but I, I was attracted to the idea of discovering different elements, I guess. And I had no idea what it actually was. So my mom took me to the drop zone because she didn't know it was not possible. They pat me on the head and said, you're too tiny. Come back in three years, which was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's like a quarter of my life, guys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I bit my time. I went scuba diving instead because that was allowed at 12. And so at 15, I came back with a vengeance. I obviously bit in my time for three years. And in the meantime, I met somebody who was a former instructor and had friends who were still instructors. So that guy took me to do my first tandem uh, at the age 15. And I followed up with, uh, with AFF the next summer, 16. Man, you, were, you weren't kidding. I mean, you were all about that. Yeah. 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 I was into it. And uh, you know, what's really funny is you say you started scuba diving at 12 years old, but uh, I'd like to think I'm a relatively accomplished scuba diver now, but I didn't start until much later in life until I was actually almost in my forties. Uh, and it dawned on me when I was doing deeper dives, how much more dangerous I feel like scuba diving is than skydiving. For sure. Skydiving has this image of extreme sports in the non-skydiving world, but but really it isn't that dangerous. I mean, okay, you can die doing it if you massively fuck up and people do so unfortunately once in a while, but statistically it is not such a dangerous sports compared to many other things you could do. Sure. Uh, kill yourself doing. Uh, and yeah, you could argue that some form of scuba diving is definitely more dangerous. The oh yeah. Example, way more dangerous than skydiving. <laughs> I've done one small cave that I was taken on by a group of instructors that had come out the day before to do skydiving. And of course, then they wanted to show me how exciting their world was. And without telling me it was a cave dive, did a cave dive and scared the living shit out of me. And the entire time I was in that cave, all I could think is this is going to be the dumbest way I could think of to die. <laughs> Yep. Right. I guess I suppose the only reason that a 12 year old wouldn't be able to skydive as accessibly as to scuba dive is because there's just no equipment proper to them. Yeah, properly. And I guess maybe people assume you don't have the either mental capacity or emotional capacity. Uh, yeah, like ability to control yourself, good enough. Um, I think that just described most of the skydivers I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, skydiving is not a difficult sport physically wise. Like, mm. never landed from a skydive feeling like, ah, oh, I did mess that up because my cardio wasn't good enough or like my strength sure. isn't enough. Like, it is very much, it, there's an element of, of, of balance and proprioception, but but at the core of it, it's your mind. Like first doing that first jump, like telling you, quieting it on your mind and accepting that, okay, you've done your research, you know, in the theoretical and intellectual standpoint that this is okay to do. And everything that screams in your mind not to do it should shut up. Yep. It takes courage to do that. But but once once you do this, it, it's, it is about quieting your mind and, and disciplining your mind while you're flying. 
That's one of the really fun things about skydiving, right? Is that if you break it down to the basics and you start to run through what you, the mental process that it requires to skydive intellectually, it's an extremely interesting thing to do. It's fascinating. Right? Something that I've actually been trying to, I don't know if study is the right word, but like look into and and think about a lot lately as I'm slightly transitioning from from being full-time skydiving to to doing keynotes and, and stuff like that. And those concepts are fascinating to me. Mm. How do you use your mind and uh, to accomplish that thing that in the end is it's quite a random thing to do, right? Throwing yourself out of an airplane. But but what you learn about yourself doing that can serve you in so many different aspects of your oh, life. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. Now, what did, what did the family think? Because I'm guessing, so mom takes you out to the drop zone at 12, and then you don't get to jump. And I'm sure she's thinking, well, three years from now, she'll forget all about it. <laughs> Probably. So what did she think when you're all of a sudden now you've made that jump and you're signing up for AFF at what, 15? Yeah, so 15 was a tandem. It was actually my my birthday gift. Uh, and then 16, I, uh, I went to uh, work in a pizza shop for a month to go do my AFF the following month. And I think she was probably slightly worried about the activity, but also quite worried when she dropped me off and I was this like 16 year old girl in a bunch of like older dudes uh, with not many female around and uh, lots of jokes that probably wouldn't make a mom smile. I think that was probably her biggest concern. (laughs) Sounds like your mom's a smart woman. I mean, that was always the thing too, even as I came up in the sport and and, uh, um, I had a daughter and even when she was still very young, all I could think was, Oh yeah, it's not the skydiving for her that would make me nervous. It's everything she'd have to do in order to make that jump. <laughs> yeah, it worked out though, and you know, the first few years maybe, like I didn't jump that much. I was only jumping in the summer holidays because I was still I was still in high school when I started skydiving, and then I went on to university. So I didn't really have money, so I I worked at the job zone in the summer to pay for my jump, and during the the school year, I didn't jump much. Um, so when I was out there in skydiving environment, you know, I would call every night to say, I'm alive. I'm having a great time. Nice. Uh, and then, you know, after, after a while, uh, the day, what did the, what did, what did your schoolmates in high school think that you're, you're out jumping out of airplanes? That's not something most high school kids do. No, probably not. I wasn't very popular in school. I didn't have that many friends. Uh, I think they didn't really care. I it didn't seem to impress them at least. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So what did you go to university for, by the way? Uh, I have a bachelor in history uh, in La Sorbonne in Paris. And then I did a a master in documentary script writing in a cinema school in Paris. But every after each diploma, I took a year off to go travel and do different things. So like after I graduated from high school, uh, I went to the U.S., to California to become better at English. After my first first degree, it was a two years degree. I went for six months in India and five months in Africa, just travel, like random volunteering work and stuff like that. Uh, after my bachelor, I went to Eloy for three months and, uh. and all the money I inherited from my grandparents passing away into becoming a better free flyer, which seemed like a dumb move at the time. I don't know if my parents were super stoked on that decision, but that also turned out pretty okay uh yeah and then after my master i just ran away with the circus 
So yeah, yeah, that seems to <laughs> that seems to happen a lot. But I yeah. mean, you you had the wherewithal to uh, go deep into the skydiving world, but then go back to the real world and finish what you set out to do. But was there part of you as you're you're getting your your PhD in in script writing? You said a master in a a master's script writing in yeah. script writing. As you're doing that, or were you thinking I'm going to get this? But the circus is right over there. Yeah, pretty much. Because at that time, I just got accepted <laughs> into the French national team. That was kind of concomitant. And yeah, it was like, it was an awesome opportunity that for sure I would not let pass. And so I was during the, the season, I would train one to two weeks a month. So I knew that even coming out of school, nobody would hire me when I said, hey, I have zero experience. I'm fresh out of school. Plus, by the way, I'm gone one to two weeks a month for six months in the middle of the year so i just i just thought i would do that for a year or two see what happens and then i would have to go back get a real job and uh, it's been 15 years and i'm still at it yeah that seems to happen <laughs> i mean uh, more than a few of the people that i've talked to on the podcast have a similar story with different fields yeah. well but i suppose it's we live in a world now though where people either start late in their careers or change careers later in life so it's not like the opportunities won't be there for your chosen field of study. You're just kind of delaying them, right? Yeah, for sure. And for me, it was also more um, the building of an intellectual base, I guess. Like I really enjoyed my study, like the, the Bachelor in History in La Sorbonne, just stepping into school was stepping into history. Again, the school's bloody fucking hating, uh, like 800 years old or something ridiculous like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a really cool phase and it was very interesting and, and it, it let down some, some intellectual foundation that I've been using, even though I've mostly been jumping out of an airplane, uh, with several things that I've done in the sports. So I'm really glad I did that. And also, as you said, proving yourself that you can set out to do something and actually go through with it. And, sure. and I applied that to my skydiving career as well. And it served sure. me right. Now, was there a specific moment in time when the switch just got flipped and you realized, no, I'm kind of in this, this is the path I'm going to take, or or did you just kind of find yourself in it? Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like from the very beginning, I knew that I was just going to charge. Uh, I just didn't know how long I could sustain it. Mm. And I didn't really have like a 10-year plan or a 20-year plan. I just, I was confident in the future. Uh, and I just gave everything that I got to projects one after another and, and it, it worked out. So now how did, uh, how did the progression start in working in the sport? I mean, obviously you were enjoying and having a blast, but what was that tra transition into, into working in skydiving and what was the first gig and how'd that all go? Uh, so basically for the first seven years, like from 16 to 23 ish, uh, I was just a, yeah, a summer warrior, not even a weekend warrior. <laughs> um, but then, so I had about maybe 600 jumps when I rocked up to Eloy in uh, the spring of 2008. And I showed up there with a pile of book this big because I thought for sure nobody was going to talk to me because I was a nobody and everybody was a world champion out there. Uh, sure enough, two weeks into it, everybody was like super nice to me and I was invited to everybody's house and had a blast and didn't read most of the books I brought. 
Um, but that was a that was a turning point. That's when I really got serious. And I, I went there because I had two French friends, which I wanted to start a team with, a free flight team with. And they had a few hundred more jumps than me at the time. So I felt like, okay, I'm just going to go there and play catch up. Mm. Uh, and that's what we did. And when I came back to France, we entered the competition circuit that year in intermediate in free fly. And and we did pretty good. And we were also very lucky with our timing because the year we won uh, the nationals in, in intermediate categories, the top teams who were at the time Babylon uh, and Amnesia, they had Babylon won the world championship that year in Maubeuge. Amnesia got fourth, but they both retired. That was their last year. Mm. So we arrived at the moment where we were not good at all. We were miles away from those guys' level. And like my teammates, they had normal jobs and I was a student, but we were the first, the first of the new wave kind of thing. So we got approached by the French Federation asking us if we would be interested in entering the, the French support system. Uh, of course, we said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of how it started. And then as I grew in the competition field and I realized I was not really going to be able to get an, another job because I was never going to be available, then I started doing uh, free fly coaching in between my training session, uh, very modestly at first. My very first gig was in a drop zone in north of France, in Lille. And I remember getting on that train and thinking like, oh my God, like everybody's older than me and most of them have even more jumps than I do. And like, what am I doing? And like, it's going to be horrible. I'm going to suck. And everybody was very kind and very nice and very positive. And I had a really good time. Uh, and then it kind of rolled from there. Sure. And like the more you do competition, the more you put your name out there, the more people you meet. So that's how the ball kind of gets rolling. Well, and I suppose, especially in a situation like yours, where you rock up at Eloy and, and find all these very welcoming people, the community is addictive. Yeah. Right? For sure. It was for sure. And I remember like walking into the hangar and I've been talking to Amy on on, uh, on email. And for some reason, because I have a bit of a weird name, she thought I was a dude. And when I rocked up and she was like, you're a girl. <laughs> that was the beginning of my story with Amy, which is now my teammate. Mm. But yeah, for sure. Like the this this freedom and and this joy and the tightness of the group was very appealing. Plus, of course, I fell in love with a boy over there, which uh. I was playing in Vegas. Long story. Uh, <laughs> so I definitely was hooked into that world. I mean, it really is an addictive world, and and it's such a multicultural world because it's people from everywhere. I mean, I I was in the states for a very long time, and uh, I I used the excuse that I didn't travel because the whole world came to me. <laughs> I worked with everybody, South Africans and Brits and, and French people and Kiwis, and they just were everywhere that I was going. It was just, I was like, rarely were there more than a few Americans scattered into this very international crew. And it was it was really addictive. It really was. And everybody's on the same stoke that you are. I mean, everybody's got that same fire. Yeah. It really is. It's strong. It has been for as long as I can remember the community uh, and the kind of lifestyle this community lead you to live with intensity, with highs and lows, but but so much intention and strength that that's why I never left. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and also, I mean, I don't think there's not too many countries that do it even close to as good as France in regard to supporting skydiving. Like I've talked to a number of people from teams in France, and I'm always jealous of Holy shit, that's what they do? 
Yeah, it's getting a little bit worse. Like the support, the amount of financial support the Federation gets from the government is kind of dwindling down every year. But yeah, there's been some glorious years for sure. And uh, the fact that skydiving is taken seriously in some ways, like it is like any other sports in France, uh, depending on how much medals the sports bring, you get more or less funding. So it's kind of a nice uh, virtuous circle um, since in skydiving, we are one of the rare country who gets that much support. And we are on podiums very often because duh, you win if you train a lot. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's really good with that. And that's it's one of the reasons, like a, a couple of years ago, I uh, accepted to be part of uh, the new bureau for the French Federation. So I volunteer some of my time uh, for that. And the rationale behind that was that I got the life I got today because of that goddamn federation which drives me crazy most of the time <laughs> but i decided that instead of you know bitching about it i was gonna try to do something about it and uh and give back because because that system allowed me to be who i am today sure well and i i suppose too um if you keep it as uh, even in a selfish state of mind being selfish means that you take care of that federation because it continues to take care of you and it also brings up the next generation exactly. which again gives back to you i i find it very funny to do the podcast and most of the people that i talk to now uh, are younger than me and have been in the sport for less time than me and are dramatically more accomplished jumpers and i love it Oh, that's blame the tunnels for that. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> time machine unfair. Ah, I had to run uh, from head down in the sky. Can you believe it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Someone <laughs> flying circles around me and you ask, how many jumps do you have? Oh, like 220. Uh, Fuck me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you started competing, you started intermediate, but uh, the French Federation kind of kicks in, kicks you guys into high gear. So how long was it? How long was it? To in 2008, we were uh, by ourselves competing in intermediate, winning the nationals. And by the next summer in 2009, we were getting a bronze medal at the World Cup uh, with basically just half a year of, of training. So it was it was quite a fast track. We lost one of we lost our original uh, cameraman in the process because we started getting like me and one of the, the a guy, Nico Gouta. We were just full on into it. Uh, Nico took a, a sabbatical from his job, ended up also being a professional skydiver in the long run. Um, and and that that Antoine, our cameraman, couldn't really follow. So we uh, we ended up bringing the American boy I fell in love with, import him into France and get him as our new camera flyer, which turned out to be a great idea because we ended up being a world champion and a horrible idea because that was, on a personal standpoint, a fucking shit show. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> You married an American. <laughs> yeah, right, jokes on me. I'm, now I just married a Brit, so I guess I'm not learning. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, really, the only difference is the accent right there. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was um it was an incredible journey. And one really cool thing about the French team as well is that you train as a collective. So there's two free fly team and two freestyle team that get support and are sent to international competition. Uh, so you train together, you travel to competition together. It is kind of weird sometimes when it's your opponent because it's your friend, but then you're you're up against each other. But but it like some of those guys are still some of my my really close friends and people that I'd maybe see less these days. But every time we see each other, it's like, you know, we never left because we've been through 
such an intense, interesting, cool, hard phase of our lives together. Sure. And those are the kind of friendships that are uh, quite special. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've done some of the competition stuff way, way back in the day and for a very small period of time. But I've obviously observed it over the years and flown competitions over the years. And and I was always struck, especially by the Canopy guys, um, of the camaraderie between competitors and I see that with, obviously, with foreign eight-way, they're a little bit more hardcore when the competition's going on. But at the end of the day, they're still all friends. You know, I, I remember giving Craig Gerard a hard time because he was coaching 10A in Dubai. And I even asked him on the podcast I had him on. I'm like, how much shit are you getting for an American training the Russians? And he just got... Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you know. Gerard, nobody can give him shit for more than a half second. No, 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 you can't. I mean, the guy is too much of a sweetheart. I I got it's it's my claim to fame. I got Craig Gerard to sit and talk for an hour and a half about skydiving in a toilet with me. <laughs> right? How I need to find that one. Yes. How nice a guy is that that he literally came to my house and sat in my spare bathroom and talked skydiving while we got drunk in my toilet. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's actually why I say back in the can and uh, my introduction is because it was the can. We were in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, so for you, the competition stuff and standing on the podium happened quickly. Pretty quick, yeah. Because we so we started on the international scene in two thousand nine uh, with a bronze medal, and then the next year we didn't go because I broke my back a month before uh in a free fall collision which was totally my fault it was my my one and only accident in skydiving and it was a good lesson and i used what? that story i basically made a mistake in um i was leading a track dive and i was doing a back-to-back -back, and it was the first jump and i realized i was kind of a little bit far and i thought i'm not gonna make it so i thought i counted everyone in the jump and decided to do one of those to come back to the drop zone obviously one of the person i didn't see didn't hear his dealer was still coming out for me <laughs> Uh, so I tell that story to pretty much every single angle group that I coach, because it's a very vivid way to explain why you should not do that. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's those kind of lessons that I love getting across on the podcast. Uh, I have uh, a bunch of people listen from a Facebook group called the Beginner Skydiving Forum that has like 60,000 members now. And and wow. uh, for those that are listening, those are the people that are really trying to get into it and, and hearing somebody at your stage in skydiving, telling them, this is when I fucked up and this is what it cost me. It's a, it's a great lesson because let's face it, skydiving is the sport where you want to learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah, for sure. And that that's something that with a group of friends of like, like free fly coach uh and i work a lot with tora tora we started um uh, a coaching master class a few years ago and that's every, every one of those master class uh, it's a week long we have a session where we share our fuck ups uh not only because we want the lessons that we learn to be carried on and passed on but also because we want to create a culture where it's okay to own up to your mistake and not just swap it under the rug hoping nobody saw you and carry on because that's something uh, that is sometimes lacking a little bit in our skydiving world, whether it's for ego reasons or because you're afraid of like losing work or credibility. Or, like There's all kinds of reasons that can push you to not own up to mistakes. But that is a dangerous culture to live in. Mm. And one of my friends, uh, Marius Sodberg, um, is, uh, is from Scandinavia. 
Uh, and he is the one who kind of first brought that whole thing to our attention by sharing a book called Black Box Culture, which study the difference between the world of aviation and the world of medicine, where in the case of aviation, you have every single incident or accident is thoroughly uh, researched into and shared and, and built upon so nobody makes the mistake again. Whether in the medical field, there was countless examples of people kind of hushing problems and not learning from mistakes. And uh, yeah, that's been something that's been important to us since to try to share those and make sure that people are okay with sharing those. Like we're human, we're going to fuck up at some point. There's no way around that. That's why I don't base jump. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, being able to admit to stuff like that takes a huge weight off your shoulders as well. I mean, it's it's, uh, freeing to be able to say, hey, these are the mistakes that I made. They're laid out there and I'm human. Uh, when I would train other pilots to uh, learn to fly jumpers, um, I, I, of course, had been doing it for so long that it looked like I just had everything dialed in. And at some point during training, I would have to tell each and every one of them, oh, no, I fuck up two or three things every single load. The trick is recognizing that you've done it and fixing it. And that means you have to admit to yourself and sometimes to other people I screwed that one up, you know, let's keep it from being a serious one by admitting when the just the little shit's going on. That's very important. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. That culture in skydiving that doesn't talk about some of the stuff uh, definitely needs to be pushed away. We have to be more open with stuff like mistakes and accidents. And um, I talked to somebody else that uh, um, really wants to push talking about mental health in mm-hmm. skydiving, which I think is a huge thing as well. Um oh, just having that incredibly open culture like we do around the bonfire. But for some reason, as soon as the jump lights on, that seems to fade a bit. Yeah. And it's, I think it starts by the leader in the sports to it's on their shoulder to create that culture. Cause when somebody who gets into the sports sees that, uh, then it will just trickle down. Or at least that's what I believe. Oh no, absolutely. In fact, the the majority of the comments that I get especially with um high-profile skydivers with the podcast when they talk about their mistakes. Um the people that appreciate those podcasts the most are like, "Oh my god, they this person was a rock star to me and now they're a hero, but they're human. And I, they've told me about their mistakes. They told me when they were scared. They told me when they were nervous or they rode the plane down because they had a bad feeling. And it just kind of makes everybody else go, ah, okay, I get it. Yeah. Yes, yes, it's <laughs> absolutely okay. And, and uh, it's that culture of I'm not supposed to be scared bullshit that needs to go away. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're stepping into the right direction. Oh, yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. So with all the competition stuff, I know we we talked uh, just at the very beginning, you had mentioned that uh, you had done a TED Talk. How did that come about? Uh, Well, that was um, kind of just before COVID started, actually. Uh, I decided to uh, get into public speaking. Uh, I had two of my very dear friends. Uh, one is gone now, unfortunately. Fred and Vince, the Frenchies, probably know them. I knew them very well. Yeah. yeah. So they, they, they have been doing that for a few years, and that's something I wanted to get into. So I had a long uh, chat with Vince and asked him uh, like how they started doing it. And he put me in touch with the person they did, a uh, French woman they did coaching with to start doing that. And through that person, she got my attention that there was this the TED Talk application opening not too far from where I lived. And I thought, fuck it, I'll give it a go. Um, 
So I, yeah, I applied and, uh, and it worked out. It was quite a long process from application to actually being on stage. It was about a year and it was super interesting. It was difficult in many regards because like you have a short time and I tend to talk too much. So I'm glad we're, we have an hour, you and I (laughs) (laughs) been told many times I use way too many words. Uh, so, you know, you only have about 15 minutes, you have to be concise and impactful, uh, and mostly the people you're going to physically speak in front of, like they're not skydivers. So you you need to make it understandable and attractive and interesting for them. But you also know that shit's going to get on YouTube at some point and all your mates and peers are going <laughs> to hear it. And so you also, you know, don't want to betray the cause. So yep. you want to find this this middle ground between being understandable to non-skydivers while resonating and kind of doing your community proud. Uh, so that's, those are two requirements I was very self-conscious about uh, and, and wanting to kind of open a window on our little world and that it, it, it might seem crazy from the outside, but but all the reasons we're doing it for are usually not the one people think it is. Sure. So uh, it is it is in French. Uh, I have been uh, working on a translation, but it's the whole TED thing. It's quite a long process. So I've sent the subtitles and now it's kind of in their hand to uh, put it up. So hopefully it will get down at some point because I would love to share it with my English speaking friends. Uh, but it was an amazing experience. And uh, yeah, I, I, I looked it up and, and uh, listened to about five seconds of it with no no subtitles and went, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. what was what was the angle that you took on the talk? I mean, well, what was the general gist of it? Um, so the, the, the title was Why Do I Jump Out of Perfectly Good Airplane? Uh, which is a bit of a cliche title, but I, I wanted to uh, first convey what it is exactly that we're doing and then why I'm doing it. Uh, so I use uh, one of the jumps from the, at the time, the previous women's world record. We, we broke it since, but at the time it was uh, uh, the 65 way. Mm. Um, so I basically, I start by running people through a jump from basically gear up to landing, uh, try to make it an exciting story, but also explaining what it is that we're doing, the terms and what is relative when and how do we feel and, uh, how, how this whole things works basically. Uh, and then I show them a video of the jump. Uh, and then the second part of the talk is kind of my reasons for jumping Mm. it ranges from, you know, basic stuff like, okay, actual love of the physical sensation or the, the beauty of the places it takes you, but also mostly in my case, the life it allowed me to live um, and kind of tapping deeper down into my motivation. Uh, there's this Spanish writer called Javier Cercas who said that, like for him, uh, reading literature is a way to live more, to live in a more intense, in a more complex way. And I, I very much agree with that. And that's one of the reasons I absolutely fucking love reading. But that's the same reason I love skydiving and the life I lead skydiving, because it had allowed me to go way beyond the life I could have led if I had stayed in Paris and become a history teacher, for example. Mm. Um, and that's something that's you know, people who think skydiving, wow, extreme sports, they don't they don't necessarily realize what it actually does and change into your life. Like what taking that leap of faith um, into a weird sports, deciding to have uh, to make it my profession as an independent, as a woman, like it was the whole thing was slightly risky. But but taking that risk is what allowed me to live the life that I've been leading and that I've so in love with and so grateful for. Sure. Uh, 
that's that's the main message I wanted to convey. Like, I mean, and honestly, it it uh, uh, skydiving can give such a huge base for uh, different directions you could take a talk like that. I mean, just the dealing with the fear factor of skydiving. My lord, you've got hours worth of TED talks just dealing with the mental hurdles and yeah. and. You know, I mean, going from that first jump fear to the first AFF fear to the first big way fear and and the different ways that you have to overcome it. Exactly. And explaining the difference between those fears. And actually, that's one of the thing I got the most people reaching out to me afterwards was that at some point I uh, explained that I'm like stressed, like before jumping on that big way, like I have fear symptoms, like my heart rates uh, accelerates and like my my brace shortens if I don't pay attention to not let it do that. And I explained that it's not so much that I am afraid of jumping out of the plane because that was very much the case for my first jump and maybe the first 50 jumps. Sure. Uh, but now that I'm about to jump on a big way, it's a performance stress. It's mm. uh, So it's, it's slightly different. But I had a bunch of people writing me after that and especially young jumpers that were like, okay, so you were scared for the first 50 jumps. Like, yes, I was. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Um, and yeah, like people think that you just manage to somehow stop the fear to do those things. But that's not the case at all. You just learn how to deal with it. And that's the advice I give to people all the time that are not jumping. And they tell me, oh, like I could never do what you do. I could never jump out of an airplane. I'm too scared. I'm like, yeah, of course you're scared. It is scary. Like nothing in your DNA makes it OK for you to just get off of an airplane. Like maybe if skydivers make babies for enough generation, we'll end up with people. <laughs> it's kind of a pretty recent thing in the history of humankind, right? Pretty recent. Uh, pretty recent. So I tell people, of course, you're going to be scared. Like there's no way you're not going to be scared. If you wait not to be scared to do it, you will never do it. Mm. You have to do it despite your fear. Uh, and you have to manage to find enough mental self-control to do it anyway. And once circling back to what we were saying at the beginning like if you find the strengths to do that it's going to be so liberating first of all it's going to be cool as fuck and very joyful and very exciting and you're going to land and you're going to scream and it's going to be one of the most amazing things you've ever done but also you gain the confidence to apply that strength to other area of your life wherever you might be needing it Absolutely. Well, that's the big thing, right? I mean, it's kind of funny because I look back on all my jumps and and you tell a non-jumper, the, they always ask, how many jumps do you have? And if you said 100, they'd be like, oh my God, you have 100 jumps? You say 12,000 and they can't wrap their head around it. <laughs> oh, you're you're just Superman. You must not be scared of anything. And you try to explain to them that no, there's a, oh, no. A, an amount of fear goes into all aspects of the sport, but it's that fear that keeps you sharp. It's that fear that keeps you safe. And it's not something like, it's not like it's controllable. That fight or flight comes up because that's how we're hardwired. It's, yeah. it's going to come up. The benefit to it is the re reward you reap outside the sport. And it's an, it's an information. So you need to be able to use it as such. Like it is an important information. You should not ignore it. You should make sure that whatever you're going to be doing is actually well thought of and not going to kill you. But also you can use it. It kind of turns you into a superhuman in some ways. Like what it does, it makes you quicker. It makes you stronger. It makes you sharper in many ways. So if you can harness that and getting rid of the negative side of it, then you're going to perform even better. And for me, for some people, it gets 
more natural than other or more in that sense like some people get paralyzed by it some people get a fire behind their ass like i was more of the second category and i discovered mm. that about myself in the competition because competition is the highest level of stress i've ever felt on skydive like <laughs> pressure like world championship like you do not want to fuck that up mm. and you can let that stress and fear paralyze you and then you cook it and then you lose or you can let that fear fire you and make you flown like you've never flown before and either it kind of comes naturally to you or you have to work hard to turn that fear into power but it is something you can work on mm. Oh, absolutely. I'm uh, to be perfectly honest as I look back, I'm I, I had a fair amount of fear starting out in skydiving and looking back I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I know people that have had or at least by all outward appearances have had much less fear to deal with in stuff like skydiving. I wouldn't have wanted that because for me the reward of having overcome that fear and then succeeding in that was just overjoying. I mean, there's nothing better than landing from a really intense day of jumping on that drive home and fucking nothing else matters, man. The world, all the volume got turned down. You just all the way back driving home going, I don't fucking care about anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, right? That's uh, pretty cool. It really is. Now, speaking of, having to really think out the safety aspect of stuff. I saw a photo of you where you're doing an amazing impression of a human tube. You're wearing <laughs> an enormous gown. You should have seen me test the first one they sent out to me in the wind tunnel. I was just wearing a tube. <laughs> and it's so funny you'd said that because that's how I described that first test to my friends when I showed them the video. I sent them to you. It was ridiculous. The first one they sent, I literally was a tube. There was maybe four meters of dress past my <laughs> I was like, I'll test it in the wind tunnel to show you why I can jump and survive that, but yep. I can't jump and survive that. Well, it was so funny because I saw the picture and my very first thought was, well, she's going to be head down. Yep. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so how did that come about? Because I know this was a, a couture big deal designer and for a huge fashion thing out of Paris, yes? Uh, yeah, it was for the Paris Fashion Week. The designer, Iris von Erpen, she's actually Dutch, uh, but she's I, I'm not very into fashion, so I did not actually know her beforehand. If it's not uh, a jumpsuit, but... neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but she turned out to be an incredible human being. She's the person who asked me the most profound and interesting questions about skydiving I've ever been asked because she has such a creative mindset and she really looked at, and she's a dancer herself. And she really looked at free flying, especially as as a form of art and and dancing. So it was really interesting to um to exchange with her on that. Mm. She randomly found me on Instagram, and that, that was really strange to me because I am by no means a big deal on Instagram uh, at the time. I mean, I still don't have many followers. I got my blue tick yesterday, actually, which is <laughs> woo! I'm a big deal now. Uh, but yeah, there's so many other women who are who have much more bigger presence in like skydiving women who have bigger presence on Instagram or maybe physically more fit to be a model. I'm like, not very tall, not very slim. So it was very surprising to me that she would reach out to me. Uh, but for some reason she liked, I'm not even sure what, like what I wrote and how I presented my sports. Mm. Um, so yeah, basically her assistant reached out to me on Instagram asking if I would be interested in a call to talk about a project. And at first I thought it was a scam. I was like, what? Right. 
up, uh, yeah, I went on that call and we exchanged and she explained her ID of basically it was during COVID. So they were not allowed to do runway shows um, that time. So she was going to do a video presentation of her next collection. And she had this vision of presenting one of her gone in free fall. And she asked if it was possible. So I said on paper, yes, but we are going to have to, to work together quite a lot. And then started maybe three months of uh, heavy exchanges. And I reached out to some of my girlfriends, like Roberta Mancino, first of all, who was very helpful. Uh, Laurie Lubé, who did some flying in that you did a podcast with as well. She yeah, had yeah, yeah. Flying in, um, in the tunnel before. Uh, my friend Magali Braff, she jumped a wedding dress. So I basically called all my girlfriends who have seen jumped in a dress before and be like, okay, give me everything that you've got. Uh, and I, you know, pieced a lot of things together. And Roberta was especially because she does also a lot of stunts and Hollywood jumps. So she was very helpful in like precise details about where to cut what and like how to make the parachute as invisible as possible while, you know, remaining safe. Um, so first I went to Amsterdam uh, to try out some fabric in the wind tunnel in Utrecht uh, because they had all like she had all those ideas and I kept telling her the wind is going to destroy everything. That should be the mindset that you're in when you build that thing. But telling that to somebody and having them actually seeing the effect of the wind <laughs> on fabric is two different things. So that's why I wanted to go there and actually, you know, go to the tunnel and and fly with different type of fabrics so she could see how, first of all, how it reacted, uh, but also how it held up. Mm. Most of it didn't held up. <laughs> right. Um, so I think that helped her, like the direction of the of the design of the material that she used. Um, and then they sent the first prototype. Uh, that I tried out in the wind tunnel in Paris. And that's that's the tube one. It was ridiculous. It was so long. And like I could get into like a head down car with it. Uh, but then just for the lols, I flew it on my belly to, you know, pretend I was going to open. And basically that, so that's me here. And it just was doing this. Over oh. Yeah, I'm not pulling in that. Um, so, so yeah, I told her I was not feeling very comfortable about jumping that and it had to be shorter. So they sent another prototype, which was way shorter, uh, which I received because I'm traveling all the time. Right. So it's, it makes like knowing where you test things a little bit random. And at the time I was with my uh, partner in England and all I had with me was my Valkyrie 79. I was like, oh. It's not really the canopy I was planning on jumping to test that thing, but uh, I got. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, so I did test it with the Valkyrie and it worked out, actually. I was very happy about that. Um, uh, and yeah, then they, they finalized it. And when I did the project, I jumped my wingsuit canopy, my Horizon 150. And I basically treated it as a wingsuit opening, like mm. after... Uh, after getting back on my belly, I just kept a four drive to make sure whatever remaining, but I also was wearing a legging underneath. So we had stitched the dress to my knees on the level with my knees to the legging. So it could never like fly over me basically. Sure. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a super cool project. We did it in the Southwest of France over Arcachon, which is a gorgeous part of France. Uh, like the Bay of Arcade, it's super, super nice. There's the Dune du Pila, the highest sand dune in Europe. And my my ex, my ex teammate Nico he runs the a drop zone over there, so we went and did that there. And Alex Mr uh, did the video, uh, and Yeni uh, Norin did the kind of the backstage uh, photography and some outside shots. And it was super cool. It was so it was, I couldn't jump a helmet, obviously, nor an altimeter, so I had nothing, just the dress and my parachute. Um, 
And Alex was my cue, basically. Like we had, you know, planned the different angle that she wanted and the different things I was supposed to do. And then when he left, it was my cue to flip back to my belly and uh, and pull. But then she wanted to do a jump with a 360 camera and absolutely nobody else on the shot. So I had to do a solo jump with a 360 on my belly, still with no altimeter, no altisound, no helmet, nothing. And I was like, I mean, I have 9,000 skydives. I, you know, probably got this. I'm just going to count. So I get out there. I start counting. And then I get distracted because it's pretty. And then I'm like, shit, where was I again? I was like, oh, whatever. And then, you know, kind of just by eye and... um yeah, then I looked at my vigil and I yeah, pulled exactly the same altitude as I ever do. Um, that internal clock, boy, I'll tell you what, after 9,000 jumps, it's pretty wired yeah, in there. It's pretty wired. Sure. Yeah, yeah. When I first saw the picture uh, of you head down in the dress, I I was trying to figure out, I'm like, all right, pull time's going to be interesting trailing that much cloth. I wonder if, can she cut the whole bottom of the dress away? Like I'm running <laughs> through all of these ideas of how the fuck is she going to get through that? But I mean, angle flying out of it. Sure. But yeah. uh, I, my head didn't go there. I'm like, all right, I got to know. <laughs> slight, slight forward movement, basically like a wingsuit, wingsuit jump with a, not yeah. resource. <laughs> with a, with a very long flowing blue gown. Yeah. And a big fat canopy over my head. <laughs> and a big fat canopy. <laughs> So with stuff like that, I mean, you did the competition, you, you've you've gone into doing specialty jumps like that, clearly doing a bunch of coaching. What direction are you heading now with your career, not just with jumping, but with everything? Um, so when I stopped competing in uh, the sky and, uh, and stopped the team, it was called Crystal, I, I got into another team, which is called Joyrider. We actually had a few Joyriders on the podcast yep. uh, before. Um, and we did some competition in the tunnel. And nowadays, we mostly work together, um, train together a bit and, and, and organize events together. Uh, and we just brought in like a bunch of new, uh, uh, not just, but for the last few years, we've, we've been bringing up new blood. And we kind of see it as a way to pass the torch as well um, of of bringing more women into this kind of, of career uh, and, you know, having the support system to, to dare to go into that. So that, that's been super cool. And that's something I definitely want to keep putting some, some effort and passion into. Um, I keep telling myself that I'm going to start to do less, but I am suck at saying no. So, <laughs> so far it hasn't really worked out. I keep traveling around, uh, to really cool location to hang out with really cool friends to do some free flight coaching. Um, but three years ago, I opened a wind tunnel in France um, called Zero Gravity. It's at the doorstep of a big theme park, uh, Futuroscope, about three hour drive from, from Paris, between Paris and Bordeaux. Um, so I moved there uh, yeah, about, about three and a half years ago. And I was so I did that with with four other partners. Obviously, there were some responsible adults in the mix because <laughs> they don't need <laughs> to do any, you know, any accounting related or um so i was more in charge of like the sports side of things um and i'm st- still involved uh but less less heavily now it's it's been three years the the business is is rolling so sure. i'm i'm keeping a foot in it but a little bit more lightly uh and then for the last couple of years i've been working on developing uh my speaking uh motivational speaking keynote speaking business um so i don't dedicate nearly enough time to it because I can't say no to skydiving events, <laughs> but uh, I'm working on it and it's going pretty well. It's been very interesting on an intellectual standpoint, mm. uh, very 
rewarding to be able to make an impact on on people outside of my community with with lessons learned in this weird world of ours um and it will allow probably a little bit more um geographical stability which i'm going to need because i'm hoping to start a family at some point sure sure absolutely well you know it's kind of funny too that uh, there's i can think of a, a number of skydivers that have gone into keynote speaking and public speaking because you do come up with a wealth of experience that the average person will never have but it it's it coincides so well with the fact that i think i forget where i read this statistic but people fear more than death public speaking so <laughs> So coming from a skydiving background, it makes sense, you know, to somebody that's had to overcome that level of fear because public speaking can be intimidating. But if you put me on stage in front of a large group of people, I might be nervous, but I'm going to get through it. I'm going to be fine. And but you have the tools to deal with that fear as well. Sure. Yeah. You then to deal with jumping out of fucking airplanes. Yes, because <laughs> of doing shit like jumping out of airplanes. Yeah, you learn to just put that fear in the background. And I used to say it uh, in regard to flying in um, in emergency situation and flying the airplane. At one point, every time you just tell yourself, all right, once I'm on the ground, I'm going to fucking freak out about this. But I don't get to do <laughs> <Not> that. <now. laughs> until the choppy thing stops spinning. So it's yeah. the same thing, whether you're on a jump or you're flying a plane or you're on stage, you tell yourself, all right, I'm going to fucking freak out later. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That rings a bell. <laughs> That's very cool though. I mean, because you have the opportunity now. So you're, you're, you live in France, but then you travel for everything else. Yeah. Uh, the home base is there. And uh, I have spent maybe a solid four. Yeah, solid five months, five to six months in France the last three years, maybe more, four or five. Uh, but I, I amuse myself with, with making statistics when COVID hit and suddenly for three months I was uh, locked in a beautiful place, give you, but still locked in one place. I started looking at my Google calendar and I discovered that in the past 10 years, so we're talking like 20 uh, 10 to 2020, mm. there were three occurrences of me spending three weeks in a row in one place. And that's the maximum I've spent in one place, three weeks in a row. And that happened three times in 10 years. So just to give you an idea of like the stupid lifestyle I was living, yeah, I'm going to help for five generations for my carbon footprint. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, but you'll find a way to pay it back. Now, yeah. speaking of, you just mentioned the beautiful place that you're at. So for people watching on YouTube, I want you to show me again what you showed me before. And then for everybody that's listening, describe what you're showing everybody. <laughs> Because this okay, is fucking so ridiculous. This is my home. I found that on basically the French equivalent of Craigslist. Okay. And it cost me less than renting a studio in Paris, which is where I come from originally. And so, yeah, this is this is my house. <laughs> and <laughs> this is where it is. <laughs> you, you live in a fucking castle in France. I live in a fucking castle. We even have towers. I'll show you the towers because they're really cool. Just kids, this is, this is what... Oh, we, I think I think you got too far away from your internet. Oh, we, I think we lost you. We'll hang on, oh, folks. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> we got Sorry, you. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. That's okay. We still, we I'm still coming got, back. We still got you. I just, <laughs> I, I love that uh, um, kids, for everybody that's just getting started in skydiving and everybody that's watching and listening, 
just know that being a skydiver, eventually you're going to get to live in a castle in France. <laughs> yep. That's what being a skydiver yeah. does. I'm waiting for my castle. I've been told it's almost ready, but not quite. So. Well, you can, you can come and visit mine in the meantime if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely love it. So before we get going, I want you to tell everybody, how do they follow you? How do they find you on social media? How do they get coaching from you? How do they go to your tunnel? How do they hear some of your keynote speeches? Uh, well, uh, I'm on Instagram uh, under Domi Kiger, I think. D-O-M-I-K-I-G-E-R. Uh I still have the good old Facebook page as well. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I'm not hard to find, I think. So the normal <laughs> so social media routes? Yeah, normal social media routes. Uh, if you want to do some coaching or come to the tunnel, yeah, just reach out to me privately. Nice. And I'll, you know? I don't know. The the blue check, uh, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, mm, I don't know if I'm going to get a response. But apparently you <laughs> just got that. So it hasn't gone to your head yet. Yeah, that's funny. I've uh, I've applied a few times in the past, and I feel like I haven't done anything different this time. Uh, and somehow I got it in like twelve hours. I was like, "Huh, fancy that." I've applied a couple of times, and I just get back a ha 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> like they're not they're not giving me shit. That was it, it's funny because uh, obviously some of uh, the people that we have in the sport are very very high profile because of the the visual impact that they have with skydiving. Uh, and as soon as you see the blue check and, you know, 100,000 followers, I always assume this person's going to be difficult to get a hold of. But by and large, skydivers answer their messages. That's fucking cool. We're not that big of a deal. Like, skydiver, nobody really cares about us, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> cool. Like, I keep telling people, like, I've, I've met, you know, sp- that, like actual athletes <laughs> from other sports uh, that that are also, like, high profile or anything like we don't make that much money we're not that famous but we get to live a freaking awesome life without all the downsides of being famous um because i think being constantly in the public eye or being bothered every five seconds without being able to answer people who now think that you're a cunt that that's probably not so nice (laughs) Uh, and we have the luxury of we we can be accessible easily, so why not be? You know, yes. Like, um, that, that's the beauty of skydiving. You can you can get one on one coaching with a world champion easy. Well, it, <laughs> that's that in soccer. Yes, yes, that is the greatest thing about it. I mean, uh, I've talked about it many times on the podcast. I've gone from hero worship to friends with so many people that I grew up and grew up in the sport admiring, and now they're buddies that send me shitty messages in the middle of the night. You know, it's. <laughs> It's great. You know, it's it's fun to find out that they're human beings and it's fun to to have them share their experience and, and just be great people regardless of their experience level. Again, back to Craig Gerard sitting in a toilet. I mean, you don't get more awesome than that. <laughs> no. It's, it's well, so hard to be. Speaking of, I reached out to you today to do this podcast and we've just finished it and it's been fantastic. I can't I can't thank you enough for being so easily accessible and, and having really a wonderful chat. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to a bunch of my friends on your podcast and I'm hoping you would send me a message one day. Well, there we go. I'm glad we got it done. This was so good. And I can't wait to see what comes next and to hear about how all the, the speaking goes. Thank you so much. You take care. Take care. 
Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by... Well, wait. Not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving, go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD, head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available, hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Damn. <laughs>